In recent times you'll recall that we were studying in the Pentateuch certain historical and theological themes, some of which included the doctrine of separation and of holiness and sanctification. We talked about the church of Jesus Christ being the called out ones, just like the people of Israel of old. God made a difference between them and the Egyptians. So God has made a difference between his church and the world. And that difference is to be reflected by us in how we behave, even how we dress, how we interact with others in this world. We are not only a different people, but we are to be those who show that we are a different people. And this is what God demands in his word. Be ye holy, for I am holy. And we considered the words of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 2, and tied that in with 1 Peter 1, 15 and 16, where that is the theme. Holiness, which God demands in his people. He demands separation. That was even seen in the fact that animals could not be yoked together who were of different species. You couldn't put an ox and an ass together in the same yoke. You couldn't mingle certain garments of different materials. And God was teaching all the way through the principle of separation. And that is something that we need to take seriously. Separation from the world, separation from sin, is of great importance to the Lord. Another great doctrine that we looked at, a great theme in the Pentateuch, was atonement by sacrifice. From the very beginning of Genesis, the need for sacrifice and blood to deal with the sin problem was very much to the fore. We saw that in the Lord making coats of skins for our first parents to cover their nakedness. We see again in chapter 4 of Genesis with Cain and Abel, sacrifice was made and Abel's sacrifice was the one that pictured Christ in that he offered the kid, he offered the blood of the lamb. And again, Noah did the same thing. Abraham did the same thing. You'll see in the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, that there were three things associated with them all the, all the way through. The altar, the tent and the well. And all three of those are of great significance. And when we think about atonement by sacrifice, we're brought to think about the Passover in Exodus 12, the morning and evening sacrifice that was offered each day, and the day of atonement which is spoken of in Leviticus chapter 16. And all of the offerings in Leviticus teach us typically what the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would accomplish actually in his death. The various offerings that are listed, for instance, in the opening chapters of Leviticus, speak to us clearly of the different aspects of Christ's one offering for sin. But I want to go from there to another great doctrine, a great theme that is found throughout the Pentateuch. In fact, it begins right at the beginning of the Pentateuch in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. And it is simply the doctrine of God. Today I want to focus on the person and the power of God. Look at Genesis 1 verse 1. I'm sure you have it memorized. In the beginning... God 
created the heaven and the earth. The Word of God never sets out to prove the fact that there is a God, but simply states the fact. In the beginning, God, and you will read the word, the name God, all the way through this first chapter. There's the Spirit of God in verse 2. God said, verse 3. God saw. God divided, verse 4. God called, verse 5. God said, in verse 6. God made, verse 7. God called, verse 8. God said, verse 9. God called, verse 10. And all the way through the chapter, you'll see this. God. 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 We're introduced immediately, at the very beginning, to the doctrine of God. I've said over and over again that Genesis is the book of beginnings. And that's not hard to really figure out because everything that's spoken of in the Bible will be spoken of for the first time somewhere. And you will say that most things that you read in the Bible for the first time are going to be in the early books. Especially in Genesis. Genesis is really referred to rightly as the book of beginnings. And in Genesis you have the beginning of creation. You have the beginning of life. Animal life. Vegetable life. Human life. You have the beginning of nations. You have the beginning of human history. But God had no beginning. You don't read about the beginning of God. You read in the beginning, God. Someone said... Where did God come from? And the answer to that is very simple. God always was. Now, I know that boggles the imagination. I know that that is beyond our pay grade, so to speak, in terms of understanding. We simply can't grasp this. Because everything you and I know has a beginning. Every day starts and every day ends. Uh, Human life begins when a baby is born and when the person dies. Everything we know has a beginning. There's a starting point. But God never started. God was always there. And that's something that we accept by faith. We don't have to understand it. We don't have to try to figure it out. We don't have to try to define it. We just simply accept what the scripture says. In the beginning, God God had no beginning. And the Bible begins, therefore, with the doctrine of God. The theology of Genesis commences and it continues in revealing to us, first of all, the person of God. And I want us to think about that for a time. The person of God. He is the creator. He is a personal, not an impersonal God. He is one who speaks, and that's something that we find right away in the third verse of Genesis chapter 1. And God said. There's the first mention in the Bible of the Word of God. God said. He spoke. He communicated. God is a personal God who speaks. But we also find that He not only speaks, but He acts. He does things. And one thing that he did here in Genesis chapter 1 verse 4 was God divided the light from the darkness. 
That's something that he did. And then we read about other things that he did all the way through this chapter and chapter 2. He is one who speaks and he is one who acts. Now we find out from Scripture who this God is. He has a name. His name is Jehovah. He is the God that we worship. That's who he is. Jehovah God. When people tell you about worshipping Allah, you can tell them there is no such God. There is no such God. The God whom we are to worship, who has revealed himself, is Jehovah God. And God has revealed himself in his precious word to us. Now we know that God has revealed himself to us in one sense, by his creation. When you read in the Psalms, you find that it tells you about the things that God did, the things that God made, and by those we understand that there is a God. We see this in Romans chapter 1, where Paul is speaking about the creation. And he makes it clear there that when we look at creation... It teaches us about his eternal power and Godhead. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So, there is a God. God has revealed himself by his creation. So we know that there is a God by looking at creation. After the fall of man, it's recorded in Genesis chapter 3, there began to be other gods, small g. Now I think it's interesting to note that false deities only began to be mentioned in the book of Genesis with the story of Laban and Jacob. We haven't time to go there today, but if you study later on in the book of Genesis, that issue of Laban and Jacob and and the idols and so on, you understand there that polytheism had already developed. But no doubt the the polytheism, the, the, the existence of many deities or many gods developed very, very quickly after the fall of man. And Ur of the Chaldees, Mesopotamia, from where Abraham came, was a place of idolatry. We learn that from the book of Joshua, there in chapter 24, when it refers to the fact that their fathers dwelt on the other side of the flood. But it identifies something about them. It says, Joshua 24 verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord, and serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served, On the other side of the flood, that's the river Euphrates, and in Egypt, and serve ye the Lord. Ur of the Chaldees was a place of idolatry. We learn from Genesis 1 verse 26 about God creating man in his own image. He said, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion, and so on. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. 
male and female, created he them. God created man in his own image. But idolatry is man making gods in his image. That's what idolatry is. Men create a god of their own imagination. And in Romans chapter 1, that whole doctrine is fleshed out. People follow after false notions that come out of their own heads and their own hearts. Because idolatrous man rejects and contradicts God's own revelation. Romans chapter 1 from verse 20 puts it like this. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Listen, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible man and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. People began to make images representing what they thought was God, Elohim, deities. This is what idolatry does. It creates gods in man's own image. That's why people today can believe in a Jesus who's quite happy to go along with some of the worst excesses of men. He's okay with it. Because the Jesus that they have has been created by them out of their own imagination. There is no such Jesus. But according to them, Jesus will accept anything and everything. And you have even so-called churches Presenting such things on their billboards now. Oh, there's no judgment going on here. Come as you are and leave as you came. In the Pentateuch, God reveals himself as Jehovah God. This is his name. But there are other names that are used to describe God. I want us to think about this as we're talking about the person of God. These names tell us something about him or they describe him. Now, there are many examples that we could note. There are four ways of speaking about this. There are propositional names. There are historical names. There are personal names. And there are general names. Let me give you examples of each of those. Propositional names. What do I mean by that? Well, for example, you read about God Most High. God Most High. Or, if you like, you have the Eternal God. That is a propositional name. It's telling us about him. And you have that wonderful verse that has even been quoted to us in recent days in relation to my wife's health. The eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. The eternal God. Or Deuteronomy 7 verse 9. The faithful God. That's a wonderful description, isn't it? The faithful God. Oh, how faithful is the Lord. How unfaithful at times we are, yet how faithful He is. The eternal God, the most high God, the faithful God, or as it is in Genesis 48.3, God Almighty. These are all propositional names. 
There are historical names. That is, names of God that are associated with certain places. Remember how the Lord said to Jacob, I am the God of Bethel. In Hebrew, the word Beth means house. The word El is the word for God. So Bethel is the house of God. And there was actually a place that was called El Bethel. And that means the God of the house of God. So here you have Bethel bringing up the idea of a certain context when God appeared to Jacob. There's a historical name. I am the God of Bethel. There are other examples like that. There are then personal names. And you would expect that, wouldn't you, when you're talking about the fact that God is a person? There are personal names. Look at Genesis 31, verse 42. I'm going very quickly here. If you can't keep up, maybe just take a little note and look at it later. But notice he says here, Except the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had been with me. Surely thou hadst sent me away now empty. Interesting names those. The God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac. Personal names. Again, you have this in Genesis 50. And verse 17. So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee, now the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants, look at this, of the God of thy Father. The God of thy Father. We sang this morning, God of our fathers be the God of their succeeding race. That is a name that is personal, is the God of our Father. He also has some general names. Let me just mention a couple of those. Genesis 24, verse 7. The Lord God of heaven. Or as it is in Deuteronomy 32, and verse number 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment. A God of truth. And without iniquity. There's another description. Tells us who he is. This is a general name. But it's a very important name. He's a God of truth. You have as well in Exodus chapter 5. And in verse 3. This particular name. They said the God of the Hebrews hath met with us. The God of the Hebrews. He's their God. And so he was. Now Genesis is not only a book of beginnings, it is also, as one has put it, a record of God's sovereignty over men and events and his faithfulness to his promises regardless of man's demerits. Let me repeat that. It's a really good definition. Genesis is a record of God's sovereignty over men and events and his faithfulness to his promises regardless of man's demerits. So in spite of man's sin, in spite of backsliding, in spite of things like Abraham doing the wrong thing or saying the wrong thing, God proves himself to be faithful to his promise. Again, this is a God who is active in his creation. There are people historically who call themselves deists. I think one or two of the founding fathers of this country were deists. 
Now deism teaches a number of things. One of the things that it teaches is that God made everything and then he just went away and left it. Just left it to find its own way. I don't believe that at all. God did not leave his creation. In fact, the Bible teaches us that he upholds all things by the word of his power. God is very much active in this world. We're not deists. God is very much at work in this world. I know sometimes it doesn't look like it. And when we judge what men are doing and they get away with it, we think, well, how could God be in charge when he allows that to happen? Well, the reason we don't know the answer to that is that the Trinity is a Trinity and not a quartet. We're not God. We don't understand the Lord's ways. But by faith we accept what the scripture teaches, that God ruleth over all. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth, that he carries out his purposes. And this is one of the great contrasts that's drawn in the Bible between the true God, Jehovah, and idols. Let me show you these two scriptures that bring this into sharp focus. Psalm 115 and Isaiah chapter 40. Let's turn to those two scriptures. The book of Psalms, Psalm 115, and we'll read from verse 2. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is now their God? And men and women, isn't that what people are saying today? That's what many people think, even if they don't say it. Where is now their God? I thought God was in charge. I thought God was in control. Look at the terrible things that are happening. Everything's out of control. Where is now their God? Here's the answer. Verse 3. But our God is in the heavens. He hath done whatsoever he hath pleased. And then there's the contrast drawn. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. The folly of idolatry. We have a true God who rules and who reigns. Who sees, who hears, and who knows. In contrast to idle gods who neither see, nor hear, nor know, nor do anything. Elijah made fun of the prophets of Baal. When they were jumping about, genuflecting, cutting themselves till the blood ran. Crying out to their gods. The chief god of whom was Baal. But the whole religion, Balaam, is a religion of many gods. And what did Elijah say? Shout a bit louder. Maybe he can't hear you. He's away hunting. Or he's sleeping. And Elijah's just making fun of their idolatry. I remember once my pastor saying, if you can get people to laugh at something, they'll never worship it. That's a really good point. It's so preposterous. It's so stupid. They'll never worship it. I don't have any problem laughing at idolatry. Even though I feel sad about those who are caught up in it. 
But then there's Isaiah chapter 40, and this contrast between idols and the true God is brought into sharp focus even more, I think, here. In fact, the, the, the 40s of Isaiah, the early chapters, deal a lot with this. You, you read about Bel bowing down and Nebo stooping and all of that, carrying their gods on a cart. And, and again, it just shows you the folly of idolatry. But if you read chapter 40 of Isaiah from verse 18, he asks the question, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation, chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he that sitteth upon the circle of the earth. And the inhabitants thereof are as grasshoppers that stretcheth out the heavens as a curtain and spreadeth them out as a tent to dwell in. Oh, the folly of idolatry. Making gods of wood and stone and sticks and bowing down to them. My wife went on a couple of trips, mission trips to Hawaii years ago. And when she was there, she witnessed in people's homes that they had God shelves. Many of them were Buddhists. And they had shelves with little carved out gods on them and they would set fresh fruit on there. Mangoes and fresh pineapple. My wife said, you never tasted pineapple like that in your life when it's picked fresh from the ground. Oh, she said, it's heavenly. There they were, setting it up on the shelf. Until it rotted away. Why? Because they're offering it to these gods. Oh, the folly of idolatry. Thinking that those carved out images had some kind of power to help them. They would give them oblations, give them sacrifices, give them things that they could have. They've been far better eating the pineapple and the mangoes themselves. Do them far more good. There's a great contrast drawn in the Bible between the true God and idols. And what the book of Genesis reveals to us about God is that he is a personal God. He's the God with whom we have to do. He's not a concept. He's not an impersonal force or an energy. He's a person. You can know God. You can fellowship with God. You can enter into communion with God. You can say with the hymn, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own. And the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. We can know what it is to be in touch with this personal God. Now sometimes in Scripture we're introduced to a theophany or a Christophany. A theophany is a, an appearance of Christ or God in the Old Testament in a human form. It's not the incarnation. That's when the Lord came into the world. 
as a man. But prior to that, you had these persons who appeared, like the man with the sword drawn uh, to Joshua, or Melchizedek who appeared uh, to Abraham, and there are various other Theophanies or Christophanies in the Old Testament, the one who appeared to Samson's parents and said that he was called Wonderful. And the emphasis again on these Theophanies or Christophanies is on the person. Now the name by which God introduced himself to Moses was Jehovah. But note with me Exodus chapter 6 and verse 3. Exodus chapter 6 and verse number 3. He said, well verse 2, And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah, and I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name Jehovah was I not known to them. The name Jehovah was a specially significant name to the patriarchs, to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. The name here that was specially significant at the beginning was El Shaddai. He says it here. I was known to them by the name of God Almighty, El Shaddai. It means the God who is sufficient. And this tells us something about God. He, he's the one who has the power or the ability to keep his word. He's the God who is sufficient. And so we note his promises to Abraham and others after him. God was able to fulfill those promises. Isn't it wonderful that we come to a God who's not only willing to help us, but able to help us? Wouldn't it be terrible if we came to the Lord and he was so sympathetic with us? Yes, I'd love to help you, but really my hands are tied. That's not the God that we serve. Our God is not only willing, but he's able. He's able to fulfill his promises. And he does fulfill his promises. And in the patriarchal period, that is how they experienced God. Now, by the way, the most references to El Shaddai are found in the book of Job. That might be something that surprises you. Not far over in your Old Testament. El Shaddai appears most times in the book of Job. And that's because in terms of the chronology, that's the time frame, Job probably belongs in your Bible in the book of Genesis, in between chapters 11 and 12. Now just think about that. When you're reading the book of Job, it belongs between Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12. Job was a patriarch. And of course that will explain, it will help to explain many of the references in the book of Job. Job was a patriarch. We're thinking about God as a personal God. But as well as the person of God, we want to think about the power of God. And I'm not going to be able to flesh this all out today. But I want to make a beginning at this. God's power is a dominant theme in the book of Genesis. As he faithfully carries out his purpose and his plan. Back to what I said a moment or two ago. He's not only willing, he's able. And thinking about God's power... It is manifested, first of all, in his work of creation. You know, when you stop to think about creation and all that was involved in it, there was a tremendous putting forth of power. And as we read Hebrews chapter 1, 
We're told in verse 2 and 3 that the Lord in these last days has spoken unto us by His Son, whom He hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power. So the things that He made by His power, He upholds by His power. But it's seen this great power of God, first of all, in the work of creation. What I notice about the work of creation is that God spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. It's not that God necessarily just had to go into action. All God had to do was to speak. He spoke. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He spoke light into existence. This is power that we cannot fathom. God spoke everything into existence. And creation is uniquely divine activity. Men, for all of their cleverness, their education, their intellect, they can't create anything. Oh, they can work with something that already exists. But they can't create life. It cannot be done by man's ingenuity. And what God has done in creation could never be replicated by man. God is a God of power. And when we think about God's power in creation, there's so much to be said about it. Creation is a display of God's power. He created all things out of nothing. That's often termed in Latin Ex nihilo. It means out of nothing. The evolutionists will tell us there was nothing and nothing became everything. The Bible teaches us there was God and then God created everything out of nothing. We believe in a six day creation. Again, there are many today, even who profess to be reformed and evangelical and biblically based, and they deny that everything was created in six 24-hour days. There are churches that have been riven by controversy over this matter and are unable even to come to a proper consensus on the matter. And they allow their elders and their ministers to believe whatever they want about that. So if they want to believe that these six creation days were periods of indeterminate length, even millions of years, they can believe that if they want. And yet the Bible teaches, does it not? You read Genesis chapter 1, and the evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day, and so on, right through the days of creation. And then you come to the fourth commandment. And when we dealt with this in an earlier message, we brought this out, but I want to emphasize it again. In Exodus chapter 20, when God gave the Ten Commandments, the commandment concerning the Sabbath, He linked to creation. Here's what He said. Exodus chapter 20, from verse number 8. Remember 
the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. That's the day following the six days of work. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Look at this. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. It's pretty clear, isn't it? It's an actual day. It's a period of 24 hours. It doesn't finish at 12 noon on a Sunday, by the way. There are many, again, even in Reformed circles, who call themselves New Calvinists, who do not regard the Sabbath day. And they'll go to their church on a Sunday morning, and the rest of the day they do all the things that they do on other days. Do their shopping, they do their laundry, they cut the yard, they do whatever they want to do, visit with friends, because their Sabbath finishes at 12 noon. But that's not a day. The Lord has blessed the Sabbath day, one day in seven. One preacher said, if the Lord had said, look, give me six days and you can have one to yourself, that would have been a great concession that the Lord made to us. But he didn't. He said, there's the other six days to do all that you need to do. Here's just, I just want this one day for me. Just this one day. And yet, are there not many today? You'll witness it coming to church this morning, and you'll witness it going home today. Many who have no regard whatsoever for the fact that this is a different day. And even in corporate America, that's reflected in how people are paid anymore. In a lot of cases. They don't get any extra money for working on Sundays. It's the way it is. Listen, the Lord has established a day of worship for himself. But there's something else that's important to note about the creation of God. There's a great distinction to note in man's creation. And here's God's power at work. And, and this is compared to the other created beings and things. Look at Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 and we'll finish when we deal with this particular point. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. A great preacher called W.P. Nicholson used to say, mankind should never become too proud because only two things were ever made of the dust of the ground. Man and the big fleas that bit Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Because God created the, the fleas out of the dust. So don't get too proud of what you are. But notice this, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. You don't read that about the animal kingdom. You read this about mankind. There is a great distinction in God's power of creation when you, when you speak of mankind as compared to the other created beings and things. All other living beings were created as living entities as soon as God spoke them into existence. But man is different to the animals and the plants, etc. You'll notice this in the wording. In referring to all the other created things, God said, 
let there be. For example, there in verse 6, let there be a firmament. Verse 9, let the waters be gathered together. Verse 11, let the earth bring forth grass. Verse 14, let there be lights in the firmament. And so on. Verse 20, let the waters bring forth abundantly. But you don't read this about man. In speaking the other creatures into existence, God used a different terminology. Because in verse 26 of Genesis 1, God said, let us make. And if you were a Hebraist, you could study the grammatical structure in the Hebrew language and find that it's different here. When you look at the earlier references, let there be, it's what they call in Hebrew the Joseph mood. But in the words, let us make, it is what's called the cohortative mood. What is that telling us? Well, in simple English, it's telling us that man is distinct from the other creatures. Man is the apex of God's creation because he's made in the image of God. That's why you don't treat your dogs and cats like people. Even though many do. Oh yes, the Bible says, the righteous man regardeth the life of his beast. This is true. We don't believe in cruelty to animals, but animals are not people. They're not persons. They don't have souls. They're folks who treat animals better than they treat their loved ones. And that's idolatry. Man is the apex of God's creation because he's made in the image of God. When you kill a man, you're committing murder. You kill an animal, you're not committing murder. Even though the so-called animal rights people say you are a murderer, they're talking nonsense. Unlike the other living creatures, Adam was formed by the power of God out of the dust of the ground and then the Lord did something. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and he became a living soul. There's no other living being that ever received that special breath of God mentioned in Genesis 2 verse 7. And as I finish, let me say this. What is spoken of creation here also applies to the new creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God spoke light into existence. He said, let there be light and there was light. He spoke light into the darkness. What does he do in salvation? 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6. God, for God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In regeneration, in the new birth, you have light introduced into the darkened soul. And there's life that's breathed into the dead soul. When we pray for people to be saved, we're praying for a miracle of grace to be wrought upon them and in them. We're praying for the dead to be brought to life. We're praying that light will be shone into the darkened cells of their hearts. Even as the hymn writer put it, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, 
My heart was free. I rose, went forth and followed thee. That's what happens when you get saved. The Lord speaks light into your darkened heart. And that is a special work of God's power. And we have a God of power who is able to do that in answer to prayer. And may we be not only busily engaged in getting the gospel out to people, but praying to the Lord that he might do a work in them. We're not only to speak to men for God. We must speak to God for men. Because only the Lord can save. Salvation is of the Lord. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts today for his own name's sake.